Our topic this week from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13, Finding the Right Spouse. I was going to title this the Finding a Good Spouse or a Great Spouse, but uh, what might be great to one person might not be great to another. It's finding the right one for you. Now, I know that uh, there are some married people here already, and, and uh, so hopefully uh, the message will still be a blessing to you, and there'll still be principles that you'll be able to apply to your life, or maybe be able to share with other people um, as time goes on. And so the reason that the topic is finding the right spouse is because here in chapter 13 of Nehemiah, we see that they chose wrong spouses, and so I thought I'd do the opposite uh, this week uh, as we look at this topic. So starting in chapter, uh, verse 23, because we've looked at the other 22 verses in two other sermons as we've taken Nehemiah chapter 13 apart. Uh, he starts with, in those days, the same days that Nehemiah uh, came back from uh, Persia, back to Jerusalem, after certain days that he was there, uh, after he had been governor for 12 years. At the beginning of that 12 years, the first 12 chapters of the book of Nehemiah are written about and take place, and it shares how God used Nehemiah to build the walls of Jerusalem uh, in 152 days. Well, it took him, 100, uh, took him 52 days, but it took about 100 years for Nehemiah to show up on the scene and get them to finish the job. And, and then the rest, of, then between chapter 12 and chapter 13, 12 years take place that we have nothing written about. They were obeying God, it was quiet. And then again, he goes to Persia for a certain time, comes back, and then he finds these problems that are written in chapter 13. First, that there was uh, 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 a Ammonite was allowed to live in the temple, in the very room where the tithe and offerings were supposed to be held for the Levites and Kohanim. And uh, so people were not returning tithe, the Levites were not working, ministering wasn't taking place. Nehemiah straightened that out. And then the second part, on they were breaking the Sabbath. Nehemiah straightened that out. And now the third topic in this chapter is, well, let's read it here. So in those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. And so you have intermarriaging taking place, and we see one of the big problems with intermarriage is it raises confused children. They're raised with different languages here in this example, some speaking Hebrew, some speaking uh, the language of Ashdod, um, but even not so much just the verbal language, but also the culture and the body language and the habits and the uh, choices that make, they're, they're, they're the language of their actions, their lives speaking louder than words, raised in confusion. Which parent do we listen to? Which God is the right God? Which way is the right way? And so we see this was uh, a problem for generational. And we see how Nehemiah reacted to this as the verses continue, verse 25, I contended with them, cursed them, struck some of them, and pulled out their hair, and made them swear by God, saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. I mean, that's pretty, uh, pretty he was erected pretty strongly, huh? Hitting some of them, pulling out their hair, cursing them. 
And we don't see him reacting that way when they're breaking the Sabbath. We don't see him reacting that way by not returning tithe and the Levites not working. This just set him over the edge. And I'm not necessarily suggesting that that's the best way to react when you see someone uh, do th this, uh, this sin against God. But we see that this really hit him in the heart. And I think one of the reasons is, is because, well, Sabbath keeping, he was able to correct them. They were able to confess that, to receive the sacrifices as the temple services were back open and the uh, offerings were being able to may, be made. The, the, the lambs would be able to be killed and as substitutionary atonement and pay the price for the person's sins and they were able to get back on track. And the same with not returning tithe and there's even a provision in God's word for them returning and, and kind of an interest or uh, to make up for the time that tithe wasn't returned to, to redeem that. And so those things can be um, modified, rectified and, and straightened out. But with this, where it's generational, where it's passed down to the children, where children are born into that and confusion is being demonstrated to them and then as the scriptures say to the third and fourth generation of those that hate me and and this this stamp is placed upon them and there's the hereditary influence that comes in by uh, marrying uh, into cultures that and families that do not believe and do not have faith and it just makes it that much harder then for the children to come to faith and the living witness to others because it's supposed to marriage is supposed to demonstrate our connection with God and we're supposed to come to God with pure hearts and God is pure and so he wants a pure union he wants us to be one with him and how can two that disagree be unified and so a marriage that has disagreements in faith especially how can they be one how can they be unified and thus it totally nullifies the picture that God is wanting us to have of the oneness with him, the oneness of the God family that they experience together, the unity there, the two, as it says about Adam and Eve, the two becoming one flesh. And so it destroys all of that. And how can we be one in one flesh when we're disagreeing in heart, especially faith and mind and in character? And then children raised that way. And we see this has been a major problem down through the ages. We see it was a problem with, that brought about the flood, the text just before the flood. It talks about the children of God and the children of men marrying together. And I believe that's an indication of, of people of faith, children of God, people of faith, and people of non-faith, of just of humanity, of the flesh, marrying each other. And then the next text is that the flood comes. And we see down through the ages it being a problem uh, we have that as a problem in the wilderness with Balaam bringing strange women into the camp. And um, it was a problem with, uh, with Naomi uh, bringing her children to Moab. And thankfully Ruth came to faith, but we don't know the effects it had on the rest of the family. And then as the text will talk about, about Solomon and, and then uh, Paul talks about not being unequally yoked. And so throughout the scriptures, we have testimony and testimony of the effects of this sin, this curse upon God's people. God wants us to be a living light. He wants us to witness, but not to unite together in marriage until, like a Ruth situation, where she comes to faith in the Lord and surrender to the Lord. And so Nehemiah goes and cleanses the camp of this evil and takes it to heart. And I believe this God, God feels about it as well. And so it is a very, very strong 
Very, very important topic for God's word. Thus, we need to know how to rightly find the right spouse. It continues on. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Yet pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? And so he gives that example of Solomon. And how then after Solomon, Solomon has a child and then that child is not able to run the country and the nation splits after just a few kings. Saul, David, and Solomon, and then the nation splits and never comes together again, never unites together again. We never have the 12 tribes together again as individual tribes, as a kingdom ever again because of this sin. Solomon almost lost his salvation if we don't have the book of Ecclesiastes demonstrating his repentance towards the vanity of all of these actions, worldliness. Horrendous plague, and we have no idea how many people lost their souls as a result of this. And the Messiah was to come through a pure line. We see he has non-Jews in his line, but they were people like Ruth and, and Rahab who came to faith and joined in the faith. One of the sons of Jehida, son of Elisab, the Kohen Gadol, was a son-in-law of Sembalat, the Horn Knight. Therefore, I drove him from me. So we see here, Nehemiah, he just takes this, this guy and he just drives him out of town. I don't know if he kicks him out of just Jerusalem or out of all of Israel. He said, get out of here. Because here again, a Kohen Gadol, the same guy, Elisab, he's the one who let uh, 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 to, uh, Tobiah live in the temple courts in the beginning of this chapter. And here maybe one of the reasons that he yielded in that way because Tobiah was buddies with Sambalat. And they're the ones who in the beginning of the book of Nehemiah fought against them and, and tried to resist the building of the walls all throughout. And here this guy has his children into marrying with them and letting them live in the temple court. So it doesn't say which one he drove out, but I guess Nehemiah may have driven all, all of them out. Eliseb and, and, and Sambalat and and Tobiah drove them all out of town because of this great wickedness, even to the Kohen. And then he prays, and we see Nehemiah praying and praying all throughout from chapter 1 all the way through. He's a man of prayer, and this kind of prayer is a prayer of judgment upon them. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the Kohanim and the covenant of the Kohanim and the Levites. And there's the problem. It's defiling the covenant, the covenant of God, that God has covenant to be our God, to sanctify us, to make us his bride. And he's not coming for a defiled bride, a confused bride, a bride without wrinkle, without spot, because he has cleansed us through the blood sacrifice of the Messiah and has purified us and made us holy through the Holy Spirit. And so we cannot be unequally yoked, joined together with those who do not share the faith in the Lord. So how do we find the right spouse? I think the, the biblical principles that, uh, that we have and time-honored principles that will help us to find the right 
spouse. And again, this can apply to finding the right job, to finding the right uh, home, to finding the right car. What type of decisions can we make? And prayer should be all throughout. So I don't mention prayer as a specific topic, but prayer should be all throughout in every aspect of our lives. And so in each one of these principles that we will lay out. First, you have to be the right spouse before you can find the right spouse. I mean, that just makes common sense, but too often, too many people are looking for a spouse to fix them. They are looking for someone to help them because they are insecure or not sure where they're going in life and they're thinking if they bond with someone else, they will help them out. And that is not healthy. It becomes codependency and that does not make for a, a, a happy marriage. And so in order to be a, find the right spouse, you need to be a right spouse because the right spouse deserves the right spouse. And so you need to be what that person desire, deserves to have. And you should have a high standard. You should pick the perfect spouse and you should be perfect by God's grace without any uh, known, cherished, rebellious, uh, continual faults that by God's grace you can overcome. And so these five areas of being the right person, being the right person spiritually, knowing where you stand with God, knowing what you believe in God, and that should be a growing thing. We'll grow and know more about God throughout eternity. But at every stage, we should be content where we're at and willing to learn and grow more. But we should know what we believe on basic tenets, on basic scriptures, and we should have a security in that and a security in our salvation with the Lord and be stable in our walk with the Lord, consistent in our walk with the Lord, consistent prayer times, consistent unity with him, consistently desiring him, consistent in reading God's word, consistent in attending services and being a part of a congregation. If we don't have a home fellowship, how are we going to have a happy home? And so we need to have a home fellowship. If you're going to go look for a car, where do you go? Who sells cars? Right? Car dealership, right? You're going to go look for a, something, a home appliance, you go to a, a home appliance store, right? So if you're looking for the right spouse, where's the best place to find the right spouse? In God's house, right? That's where God's people will be, right? You don't find them in a bar. I mean, God can use other areas, but, but you should be in a God's house. Barbara brought, God brought Barbara and I together in a congregation smaller than this. When we uh, first came together, we, there, I was attending a congregation. It had uh, three older ladies. One of them was already married. Uh, they were all over 70 years of age. And there was a married couple who had a, a young child. There was another married couple. And there was the minister, and he was married. And um, then there were two other young people that were dating. That was it. That was the congregation. And yet I believe that if that's where God wanted me to believe and be, and I believe that's where he wanted me to be, God could bring the right person there as well. Just as surely as God has a place for you reserved in heaven, I believe he's got a place reserved for us here on earth as well, every stage of our lives, every day of our lives. And if he has a mount made for us, he will bring the right person to us. The loneliest people in this world are not single people. The loneliest people in this world are people who are married and not matched. You can live in a big city surrounded with people and still be lonely. 
You can be in a home and married and still be very lonely if you're not one and united together. And I know some of you uh, have experienced that heartache of having a wrong, uh, unequally yoked marriage. And I know many of you have experienced great marriages as well. So being the right spouse spiritually and then financially. That doesn't mean you have to be rich, but you shouldn't be bankrupt either. Hey, you shouldn't be in high debt and, and struggling financially, because why would you want to place that burden on someone else? And if you haven't been able to be in control of your finances, then how are you going to be able to unite with someone else? You need to be able to gain control of that area and have a career, have a job. Know where you're going. Know how you're going to provide, how you're going to add to the income of the household. Not just be a burden on the other person and expect them to provide for all your needs, but to be financially able to manage funds wisely by God's grace. Emotionally. Shouldn't be in a state of depression when we're looking for a marriage, although many people do. Because again, they're hoping that someone else is going to make them happy. And no one else will make you happy. God and God alone will make us happy. And when we're happy in Him, then we'll be able to be happy and giving in marriage. Not just taking. If we're looking for the other person to make us happy, then we're trying to take from them and draw from them and draw from them and just suck the life out of them. Marriage is a giving relationship on both parts. And there might be times in our life where we are not emotionally healthy. We might have just experienced a, a death and, and that's causing grief at a time in your life or some major tragedy in your life. And that's fine to go through the stages of grief and heal from that and grow from that. But it's not the right time to be making major, major decisions such as marriage. And so when you're healed in that area or get out of debt or get stable spiritually, then you're ready. And then, of course, physically, I mean, someone with terminal illness might not be uh, the best uh, choice for getting married. And mentally, mentally sound. So those five areas we need to be secure in the Lord. Be the right person. And God can make us the right person on all those levels as we trust in him and surrender to him. Second list, have a list of what the right spouse for you, I pray about it and take it to the Lord. And Lord, what is my list? What should the list be? Kind of like the guy who goes, uh, drives his car into a car dealership, just wanting to look around. And he leaves with a little two-seater convertible, beautiful car, good rate. And he drives home and his wife comes out and says, oh, that's a beautiful car. Where are our three kids going to sit? <laughs> And you got to have a list. you got to have an idea of what will fit your situation, what your needs are, where you can be a blessing, what you can bless, and what you want, right? And so your list should have some red lines to it, as we'll see down our list here. Be equally yoked, certainly spiritually. You need to be united spiritually. That should definitely be uh, a green or a definite or a red. Definitely cannot be unequally yoked. So that's a clear one there. But then other areas, you might have some yellows, you might have a bunch of yellows. Put everything on the list you want, right? 
You want uh, someone tall, dark, and handsome, you know, so then you wouldn't mind marry me, right? <laughs> you know, so, you know, have your list, and that could be in the yellows, right? So if you find someone who's not, but they're spiritually great in other areas that are on your green list and on your red list, and you can adjust that list as you go along. Just make sure you don't change the list after you met someone. <laughs> don't take anything out of the red list after you met them and you became infatuated with them, and then compromise on your red lines. And again, that apply to buying something important, a house, or really anything. You have some red lines, don't compromise with them. Don't overlook the, the leak on the driveway of the car <laughs> that you're looking to buy and say, well, but I love the paint job and the seats are real soft. There's a problem there, right? So have your red lines before you get into a dating situation and make sure you don't compromise on them. So one of the things on the top of the list of, of your list should be equally yoked. And so spiritually, as we've talked about, of the same faith. That doesn't mean in every aspect of our life that we are identical. Opposites attract. And that's a good thing. Right? Otherwise, all men would marry men and all women would marry women. And that's not biblical. And so opposites attract, but... So there can be a balancing in the two becoming one and in the image of God, the two were in the image of God. But spiritually, as far as doctrinal, as far as faith, it should be equally yoked. And that term equally yoked, a yoke tied two oxen together so they could pull the cart or pull the plow. And if you have one oxen that's much stronger than the other, and he's pulling stronger and pulling faster, that, that cart is just going to go around in circles and circles and circles. They need to be equal, be able to pull at the same rate and pull at the same weight, or otherwise one will be wearing the other one down and one will be carrying all the weight. So equally, spiritually. But even in spiritual, there might be an area where you'll meet someone and, and they've got a really deep prayer life. You see, they've got a really deep prayer life. And, 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 and you may pray, you know, but you just don't have that deep of a prayer life. And so you admire that in them. And they see in you that you've got an ability to memorize scripture or know the scriptures really well. And that's something they admire in you. And that's where, again, then the two balance each other out. You know, helpmates for each other. But again, doctrinally unified. And that would go for other areas in the life too. Right? It's good to, if one person likes to cook and one person likes to eat, right? That makes a nice harmony there, right? So... So there'd be a balance of things going on. And so, again, you don't have to be identical in every area. Uh, know who you are, know what God's calling is upon you, and then balance each other out. Too often I've seen in, in, in my college situations, one person will be studying, let's say, education, and that'll be their major, and the other person will be studying medicine, and then they will meet each other, and they'll start dating, and then this education person will say, well, maybe I should take medicine, maybe I want to be in the medical field, and then they have classes together, and they do that for two years, and then they break up, and this person wakes up one day and goes, you know, I don't even like the idea of medicine, and I lost two years of college and all that expense and all that time, and sometimes it's much worse, sometimes it continues more than two years, and maybe even to marriage, and they find out they're in a profession and a career that they were not interested in all. all right, so just know who you are, and stay with that, and then you can balance each other. Too often we change while we're dating and then revert back to what we are, back to the frog or whatever, back to, we revert back to what we are when we get married. 
And so don't change what you are, don't pretend. And that's where have your list and know ahead of time. And that's one of the problems with, um, I'll get to that in another minute. So but yeah, so be equally yoked, but also balance each other out and can have different strengths that are a blessing to each other. So you now watch from a distance for a period of time to see if the person changes over time. It's easy to fake it through the dating time. It's easy to fake it for six months, a year. But watch from before they even know you're interested so that they are themselves. And that's one of the problems with the online dating. It, there's no time to watch. It jumps right to the dating stage. There's no friendship stage. There's no getting to know each other stage. And often what people put down on a resume is not exactly accurate. It's what they desire to be, what they hope to be, what their parents thought they were going to be. And so we want to be real and just be yourself. And then watch the other person. We had a tree right in our backyard here, huge tree. Branches went over the synagogue and over the, the schmooze room and huge, huge tree. And if you stood right up to that tree, you hit on that tree, it was a strong tree, healthy bark, really nice tree. You look up, branches and leaves, really bright leaves, beautiful big oak tree. But if you stood out in the parking lot and looked at that tree, you'd see the whole center, the top of it was all dead. The branches on top were dead, and then when they cut it down, the center of it was all rotted out. They had a hard time cutting it down. As they got into the center, it just was all just mush. It was just rotted to the core, but you couldn't tell that by standing right next to it. And in a dating situation, once we're close, it's impossible to back up and see the whole picture, to see the, the big picture. And to start from a distance, and then just watch and wait. That's good again, trying to buy something, you know, car, you want to get some people's opinions and read reviews and see it in its nature. If you're moving into a neighborhood, it's good to kind of know that neighborhood, especially if you can know it for a season or a year and see what it's like. Find out why it's really called River Street. Right? You might not know until, <laughs> until rainy season, right? I didn't see any river there before, right? You know, and so you might need flood insurance, right? So. So take it from a distance and be able to watch it. I watched Barbara for six months. Now I had my list, and as soon as I met her, I knew she met the list. But I wanted to make sure and confirm and watched her from a distance. No one knew I was interested in her. She had no idea she was, I was interested in her. And I was able to watch her and see. See whether she was desperate, see whether she was looking for someone. If someone's looking for someone all the time, well then they're not at peace, they're not content with God. And she wasn't, she wasn't flirting around. I was able to see whether her walk with God was consistent, whether she was involved in ministry and wanted to be involved in ministry, because often, just like, again, that college situation, I've seen where, where someone, you know, attends fairly irregularly and, and not involved in any extracurricular activity in the congregation, and then someone who is, and then all of a sudden that person who wasn't that, oh, then they want to get involved in that ministry as well. And so then they're together all the time. And then again, once they get together and get married, I really, they back off. They don't want to do that ministry anymore. They don't want to go to services all the time anymore. And then you have that conflict. So watch them to see what they're like in their natural setting. And you can find out a lot about a person just by, you don't have to date someone to know everything about them. I've never dated any of you guys except Barbara, and I know I wouldn't marry any of you. 
<laughs> you, know, you, just got, you got your list, and your list will just knock people off the table very quickly. So it's not very hard. You can see more, again, from a distance. You overhear conversations, and you see their lives, and you're able to know uh, fairly quickly by watching from a distance. And then after watching from a distance, and then developing a, a group friendship together, and then enter into uh, the dating process, where that is really just the purpose to confirm that they're matching your list and your desires, and then you get to know each other better. Five, only date someone you would marry. I've talked about that. One guaranteed way to not marry the wrong person is to not date the wrong person, right? It's very hard to get married to someone you don't date, unless you're drunk in Las Vegas one night, right? So just don't date the wrong person or only date someone who's on your list. And so the way to do that, again, is to have the list and watch from a distance to make sure that they are the right person and then you'll be able to uh, know whether or not they should be dating. And so make sure that they're mature in those same five areas that you should be mature in financially. And again, they might not see their bank account when you're just uh, watching for a, from a distance, but sometimes you can kind of tell just from overhearing conversations and seeing from a distance where someone is uh, financially, but certainly spiritually, and certainly whether they're emotionally secure or uh, socially secure. and that they meet your list. The Bible says, we already quoted, that the two, talking about Adam and Eve, the two shall become one flesh. Right? So Adam and Eve, two different persons, one and one, became one. What is the only, well, maybe not the only, but what is a mathematical equation where you can have one and one equaling one? What? Multiplication, right? It's not addition, right? Addition, one plus one equals two. Very good. Very, very good. Right? <laughs> but in, in um, multiplication, one times one equals one, right? Because the law of multiplication is one times anything is what it's being multiplied, right? So one times one is one. One times three is three. One times five is five. One times a half half. Correct. Right. And so if you are one, if you are whole in those five areas of your life, and you date and marry a half, what do you end up with? A half. Yes. Very, very rarely does the whole person, the spiritual person, bring up the other person. Most often, the whole person comes down. It's a codependent relationship. It's a one-sided relationship. It's not a helpmate. They're not working together. They're not blessing each other. They're not both giving all the time. And then, even worse, what's a half times a half? A quarter. Yeah. So we see someone's a half, and this other person's a half, and we go, oh, they make a good match. <laughs> They're both dysfunctional. Oh, they'll, they'll make it together great. But they end up bringing both each other down, better that they wait, grow spiritually, grow mentally, physically, emotionally, socially, and by God's grace, by God's power, and then become a match. And that's what God, the gospel is able to do for us. And so, 
follow God's plan of multiplication, the one and one, the two becoming one flesh. Again, because that's the picture of God that he wants us to demonstrate. Make sure you're spiritually whole and make sure they are before you date them. And you can see that again, having your list, watching from a distance. Then once you start dating, take it slow. I recommend no intimacy until the appropriate time. Taking it slow, again slow because you've been watching for a while, friends for a while with a group setting, and then dating uh, with no intimacy. Now we have a, an old saying in, in American society that when a person uh, asks for the engagement, they are asking for, anyone know what the saying is? Their hand in marriage, right? They're asking for their hand in marriage. And so that's the time that I believe is what Barbara and I practiced. And we didn't get married in the 1930s. We, uh, it was long after the 60s and the hippie generation and the open sex generation. And, and so what we practiced was out of date and out of custom and strange at that time as well. But we practiced it anyway because we had seen the wrong. We'd seen the tragedies of putting emotions before logic. And once you start touching Emotions take over, and logic goes out the window, your list goes out the window. And so we didn't hold hands, even, until I asked for her hand in marriage. So I watched her for about six months, and then we dated for four, five, six months, and then I asked for her hand in marriage, and then went the engagement time. So the dating time is really just to make sure they're matching your list. And when, at the end of a many wedding ceremonies, what was the traditional ending of the ceremony? That the minister would say to the couple, you may now kiss the bride. And if they've been kissing all along, then why has he got to say you may now kiss the bride, right? So we held off our first kiss until we were married, that we were officially married. It's hard to talk when you're kissing. And the dating time is for talking. The dating time is for getting to know each other. The dating time is to know what each plans are and goals are and, and future desires are and whether or not you're going in the same direction. What your faith is. Once you add that emotion in, you know, and that'll be for many people dating, that's, that's most of the date. Right? Or just watching a movie where you're not even talking to each other. Right? And then it's the, the emotions take over. And yet in marriage, percentage-wise, the intimacy part is not the majority of the time spent in marriage. And so it's an unrealistic to have that as part of the dating period. Better to have the dating period that prepares you for marriage. Right? For a career, we'll spend 16 years or more in schooling to prepare for a career that's really part-time. It's only 40 hours out of the week. It's only 40 maybe years of our lives. And how much time do we prepare in for marriage? Many people, zero. And yet that's supposed to be 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for the rest of our lives. Could be 50, 60, 70 years. And we no time preparing for it. And 16 years preparing for, again, a career. It's out of balance. And so the dating time needs to be focused on talking and communicating because that's what makes a happy marriage. Until often, many marriages are not happy, even among believers. 
Because both people can be equally yoked in believers. But if they're not practicing principles of happy marriages, they won't be happy. As uh, Mark Unger gives the example, he says, if, uh, if you're going in a car and you're going around a 30 mile an hour curve with no guardrail and a cliff, and you're going 90 miles an hour, it doesn't matter if you prayed before you got in the car. It doesn't matter if you're listening to godly music. It doesn't matter if you have a religious icon hanging from your mirror. You're going over that cliff. If we break the laws of gravity or the laws of nature, then we'll end in disaster. And if we break the principles and laws of happy marriages, communication especially, we won't have a happy marriage. And so during that dating time, that's the time to take it slow. Lots of communication, lots of talking, lots of brain, lots of thinking, lots of logic, and not emotion taking over. There'll be plenty of time for the emotional intimacy. Again, married for 50, 60, whatever years. You don't need to use up to six months or so, year or so of dating time and the intimacy. Save it for the marriage. God used that intimacy as a bonding time for the marriage. Marriage can be difficult. The Bible says it's going to be difficult. It's supposed to be difficult. It's not supposed to be, but I mean you're meshing two people. It's, it's, it's just what it is. You're taking two different people. Again, a man and a woman. You're putting them together. There are going to be differences. There's going to be difficulties, different backgrounds, different personalities. And you're trying to mesh that together into one household. It takes work. It takes communication. And God used, especially in that first year. And so God used and planned that intimacy time as the glue to hold the two together through that time. To help over the difficulties and struggles and disagreements. And that's what it does do. But if that's become old hat, if that's been done for the dating time and longer and people live together, and well then there's no glue after the document is signed. And there's more divorces among people who lived together prior to marriage than those who did not live together prior to marriage. And that seems kind of counterintuitive because it seems like, well, hey, they tried it out. It <laughs> seemed to work when they were dating. They test drove it. But something changes when we make that signed commitment. And so thus there's more divorces as a result of that. And to the happy marriages, they said that time communicating, learning to communicate, learning to know each other, and then save the intimacy for marriage. And it bonds them together and makes them one. No need to test drive it. Guy, all he needs is a, I mean, there are guys who get happy with a plastic blow-up doll, right? I mean, so, you know, it doesn't have to be, you don't need to test the intimacy part. It'll work. That's how God made it. It works. It's miraculous. It puts the two together. And uh, that's the amazing thing of God. You don't need to test the intimacy. Better to test the communication skills. Better to test the getting to know each other and learning to work things out and come to agreement in the dating time. Or to know if it's not right. To take it slow. Don't rush through it. Make sure it's right. And then finally, get good counsel. That's one of the things Barbara and I tried to practice. We should get good counsel before you even start dating someone. 
Counseling in your life, having someone a counselor, having someone you can bring your problems to to help you grow spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, socially, and to grow. And so when you can ask whether or not they feel you're ready. And I mean before, when you see someone you're interested in, you've been watching them, then maybe counsel with people who know you to let you know if you're ready. And if they know both of you, that's what Barbara and I did. I counseled with people. I wrote to her parents. Again, as long after that tradition was long done away with, but I did it anyway. I wrote to her parents and got permission. Told them a little bit about myself. And that I was desiring to marry her if the dating process proved that we were a match. And they gave the okay. I spoke with my parents. And I spoke with people who knew both of us. I spoke with people, one lady was former roommate of Barbara's. Talk with them. Before, I did that all before I spoke to Barbara. If they said no, well then I, why should I break her heart? And I think that's one of the reasons we don't counsel. We don't want people telling us no. <laughs> so we just go ahead, buy it anyway, do it anyway, go anyway. Date anyway. And so get the counseling ahead of time by people you trust and people who will tell you the truth. You don't want just someone who's just going to say, oh, yes, I'm so happy they're marrying anything. <laughs> you know, you know, just so happy anything will work. You know, when not care if it was a plant, anything, anyway, you know. So yeah, people who tell you the truth about yourself and about what they think about that union. And then once you start dating, we counseled probably with 10 or more couples or individuals while we were dating to get advice from them, people who had long, happy marriages, people who knew us, people... We, just, we trusted. And then after marriage, counseling should continue. Because again, marriage is a difficult thing. It can be the most wonderful thing in the world. But it takes work. And it takes growing. Like anything else in life. A lot of people get divorced just because, well, it's not working anymore. They had some disagreement after 30 years, after 20 years. Well, disagreements happen. Learn to work them through. Learn to stick with it. Made a commitment. Till death do we part. And that, it's crazy when people date together and have children together and aren't willing to sign a paper of commitment. They wouldn't be able to buy a car without signing a piece of paper. They wouldn't be able to buy a house without signing a piece of paper. You can't buy a, a few batteries at a hardware store or anywhere without signing a piece of paper and getting a receipt. And yet they will enter into a lifeline relationship, bring children into this world without signing a commitment to stay with that. And any person who will be with someone who refuses to sign a commitment, that person is not the right person. Again, the only reason for dating is to see if we are compatible for a lifelong commitment together. Not just someone to get along with for a while. That's the sanctity of marriage. Marriage is a biblical institution, not a government institution. But that government signature gives you something, if they break that commitment, that at least you can get some restitution as a result and, and have someone to take to authority to hold them to that. And so those are some of the basic principles that, uh, that again, hopefully you'll be able to apply to your life if you're single, and, uh, or God forbid you become single again, or, uh, which I guess for 50% of marriages usually happens, unless they die together. Um, 
or again, other areas of your life. And so I pray by God's grace, you'll be praying all throughout, and God will be making you ripe and ready to be a living example of the unity of heaven. So back to the book of Nehemiah. Verse 30, thus I cleanse them of everything pagan. And that should be able to be said about us. Individually, God has cleansed us of everything of the flesh. God has cleansed us of everything carnal. God has cleansed us of everything that's not of heaven. God has cleansed us of everything pagan. And then, again, we can be united together with the right person and represent God rightly. And so we can allow God to cleanse us spiritually and mentally and emotionally. I also assign duties to the Kohanim and the Levites, each to his service, to bring the wood offering and the first fruits at the appointed time. So again, we've seen Nehemiah doing this all throughout, organizing the services and making sure there's everything's being covered, everyone's participating, everybody's using their gifts and their talents, and everyone has a part to play, and that the services are organized, that God's truth is proclaimed. And then he prays, remember me, oh my God, for good. I should say good there. For good. And this is the third time we've seen him. In these three sections of Nehemiah 13, after each one of these areas are dealt with, he prays, Lord, remember me, oh my God. And so he wanted to be remembered. I don't necessarily know. It, I, don't, I doubt it's for self-purposes. I have my name on some plaque somewhere. But he's wanting God to remember him in the book of heaven. He's wanting the things that he taught and the things that he implemented to be remembered by the people, that they don't backslide again. And we have no record of what happened to Nehemiah after this. This is the last verse in the whole book of Nehemiah. So we don't know what, uh, what he did after that. It says that he was governor for those 12 or 13 years. And then he's still alive, so whether he went back to Persia, we don't know. Whether he stayed there as a non-governor and still just ministering in some capacity, we don't know. But we do know God answered the prayer. Because other than Malachi, we don't have any other, just four small chapters, we don't have any other need of prophets coming and rebuking the people and correcting the people and getting them right on track again. And so we go 400 years basically from Nehemiah until the Gospels. Because the people were remembering the principles that God laid out that Nehemiah reminded them of and put them back and built, again, not just the walls, but he built the people. He built the congregation. He, built, he got rid of the bad stones, put in strong stones, built up a strong congregation, strong city, strong nation, strong people, strong individuals. And that's what God has called us to be, a strong tower for him. And we're still remembering Nehemiah and his work today. And may God remember each one of us. May he write our name, may he write your name in his book of life and be remembered for eternity. Have your name on a room and a mansion in heaven, an address in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, wherein will dwell righteousness for eternity. And so may we have happy, godly lives here. May we live principled lives here. May we be good examples and maybe good counselors. So again, if you're married, maybe someone will come to you asking for counsel and maybe you'll be able to give them some advice that we learned here today, like Nehemiah, putting them straight, putting them right, you may have to pull out some hairs or beat some up people. I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully not. Uh, but uh, we'll be able to give good counsel, give good advice, and live good counsel, and live good advice. 
And God doesn't have, uh, not necessarily God's will for everyone to get married. Paul, don't have any record of him getting married. He chose to be content and he chose to be used by the Lord for that. And that's okay too. That's okay too. It'll be just as fulfilled, if not more so, in, uh, without marriage as within marriage as well. So whatever God's calling upon us is, may we be content, be happy, trusting him, walking with him, and following him in every aspect of our lives. And so in a moment when we pray, maybe some area applies to your life. Maybe you're single. Maybe some of these principles uh, you want to take to heart. I want to write those notes, take some notes, rewatch it again on Shalom Adventure when we have it posted there and apply it to your life. Because applying it is so important. Uh, I spoke with one person after giving a talk like this and they said, boy, I wish I would have known that 12 years ago when they married unequally yoked. And, but I know their parents and I know that that person did know better 12 years ago, but they didn't listen to the advice they had then. And I know another person who had heard Barbara and I's story and, and she'd tell everybody else, she'd tell other people about it and, and would introduce people, oh, you got to hear their story and, and uh, how they got married. And she was married then, but uh, got divorced. Uh, for the most part, wasn't on her part. Uh, some people just do wrong things, right? Adam and Eve, Lucifer left heaven. Right? One third of the angels left heaven. Some people just make wrong choices, even when the other person's doing everything right. The other person chose to leave. There might have been some part on her part, I don't know, but, uh, but whatever the case. And although she knew the right thing, she was hurting so much that she very quickly united with someone else and basically broke all the rules that she knew, heard, retold to people. It takes the Holy Spirit to give us the ability to walk by principle and not by emotion, not by our earthly desires, but by the power of God. And so if you're wanting the power of God to give you the ability to walk right with him, to be whole in every aspect of your life, in a moment when we pray, let's do that. And that applies if you're single or not single, that you'd be whole, mentally whole, spiritually whole, physically whole, emotionally, financially, socially whole. Or secondly, maybe you've been married and maybe you didn't follow these principles and maybe you still have a happy marriage. Maybe you see it could have been even better if you would have done things and set the foundation stronger in the beginning. And kind of like that education example. We dig deep and lay a foundation so that you can build up high. And so the marriage should be long. We need a good, strong foundation. So starting out right, God can give you the ability to now confess that, give that over to the Lord so he can cleanse that, cleanse that record, cleanse any hold that Satan would claim over the marriage because of that, and make the marriage even better when those areas are confessed, forgiven through the blood of the Lamb. Or maybe you saw some principles that would apply to maybe some decision you're making in your life. That you can take some of those and interpolate it into whatever situation you are dealing with in your life, some decisions you have to make. Then in a moment when we pray, maybe it's a career choice or financial choice or purchase, let's pray and ask God to give you the ability to apply that, those principles as well there. Maybe there's someone on your heart that you've seen making wrong choices, maybe a, a child or someone you know that's in some kind of relationship and looking in all the wrong places. You want to uplift them before the Lord and pray for them and seek ways 
opportunities to be able to share some godly advice with them. And when we pray, present them before the Lord and let God answer that prayer and open up opportunities for you to share correctly. Maybe there's some other area in your life that you want to pray about. Maybe in an unequally yoked situation, you want to lay your spouse before the Lord and ask the Lord to bring you together in harmony together and unity together. And so if that applies to you, let's pray together and let God do his work. Our Lord and our God, ruler of the universe, we are thankful for your love and we thank for your word and thank you that you care about us so much in every aspect of our lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us faithful witnesses to you by ourselves and in marriage and in congregational friendships, that we are one, that we are united together you bond us together in heart and mind and soul and spirit and truth and in righteousness. You give us your oneness, that you live in us and through us. We claim the blood of Messiah for our past mistakes and our rebellions and our hasty actions and our wrong choices and breaking your divine principles. Let me ask, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, fill us with temperance and self-control, God-control in our lives, to walk in your ways, to walk by your power, and to let your light shine through us. Minister to those others that uh, you've brought to our minds that we should be praying for, to draw them close to you, to give them the ability to make right choices, and to follow you in every aspect of their lives, and to be spared the heartache of, of a wrong match. And any uh, marriages that need healing and need growth, Lord, minister to them. Bond them together in love and in harmony and unity together. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.